Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. If you're listening to this podcast, you're interested in civil conversation. You'll get more of it in After the Fact, a podcast from the nonpartisan Pew Charitable Trusts, pewtrusts.org backslash after the fact. Can I tell you a story? Please do. Okay. So this is the story that brought me to Baltimore. This is Kathy Eden. She's a professor of sociology at Princeton University, and she's a very well-known researcher in poverty in America. A lot of Kathy's research takes place in Baltimore, Maryland, and that's a significant city for her. She taught at Johns Hopkins for a long time, and she lived in Baltimore, in some of that city's most marginalized neighborhoods. In the summer of 2010, I was teaching at Harvard. I came to Baltimore to study these young people who had been born in public housing, but their lives had played out. And here, 15 years later, we were kind of watching them launch into adulthood. And, and I met this kid, Marcus, in Park Heights. Kathy's most recent book is called $2 a Day, living on almost nothing in America. She wrote that with Luke Schaefer from the University of Michigan, and she's going to tell a story now about a boy named Marcus. This is actually not one of the stories that appears in her book, but it's one of the stories that she came across while she was writing it. It's a very heavy story, actually, and I have to warn you, it's also pretty graphic. I'm talking to Marcus. At the beginning of the interview, he describes what he says is the murder of his cousin at the hands of the police in South Baltimore. And he tells the story of how his, his cousin is like this, this good kid, you know, this college student. And he's walking home one day, and the police say, put your hands up, you know, behind your back or whatever. And he does so. He's told to kneel. He does so. And Marcus's story, and we don't know if this is true, is that he's shot five times in the back. So he's t- kind of told me this story early on, this the story of his family's trauma over this death of cousin. But in any case, we're, you know, we're talking and we're talking, and he then relates this walk he takes with his best friend to the 7-Eleven. You know, gangs aren't super big in Baltimore, but kids can, you know, have affiliations of of various sorts. And this kid has kind of been flirting with several different groups. Anyway, they're walking to the 7-Eleven and someone comes out of the shadows with a gun, shoots his friend in the head. The brain matter gets all over Marcus's white t-shirt. He runs home, takes the t-shirt off, throws it in the garbage can, jumps in the shower and says nothing. We are the first people who've heard this story. You know, so I like pause and I say, Marcus, what was that like? And this kid looks at me and he shrugs and he says, well, you can always get another friend, but you can't get another cousin. 
storytelling is a powerful tool in the way that it affects us. Kathy Eden uses her stories of real people in real situations bringing real lives to life about the deepest poverty in America. She changes people's minds. The truth is she's changed my mind. This is The Arthur Brooks Show, and I'm Arthur Brooks. I'm the president of the American Enterprise Institute, and I'm making this show with the Vox Media Podcast Network. This episode is about stories. One of the things that has always sort of mystified me is that often the person who has the best data and facts, maybe even the smartest person in the room, frequently is not the person who changes others' minds about politics and policy, who doesn't even win the argument. The person who usually wins the argument and changes minds is the best storyteller. That's what this episode is about. We're going to start with the power of stories and then move on to the science, how they affect your brain. And finally, we're going to go to the danger of telling stories, how we should be responsible in the way that we use them. But also, if we do it right, how stories can unify us, how they can be maybe even the antidote to polarization. Kathy Eden is a perfect example of this whole thesis. She's one of the best storytellers I've ever met, and, and yet she's a PhD sociologist. She is a true expert who also happens to use stories to help people understand the importance of her work. She has changed people's minds with her work, and when she talks about the deepest poverty in America, she might just change your mind too. Some people use stories as anecdotes. Right? They, they want to make a point. They know what the point is, and they find the story to make the point. I don't do that. To me, the stories are the data, and I relentlessly comb through, read through, listen to the stories over and over again, trying to figure out what they mean. So talk to me for a second about how stories, how you believe stories bring people together with your work, how your work can unify because it's based on stories and not just based on data analysis. Well, you know, it's interesting. I do think um, the secret sauce is the marriage of numbers and stories because maybe this is especially because I'm a woman. Narrative can get dismissed as soft. Numbers alone, they don't uh, evoke our, our empathy or our understanding. They don't complicate our scripts. That's what stories do, right? They complicate our scripts. And and a, a well-told story almost always has the effect of, of evoking the there but for the grace of God go I within the listener. You've told thousands of stories to thousands of audiences. Do you think you've ever changed somebody's mind with the power of storytelling? I could tell you maybe hundreds of stories about how people run into me and they find out who I am and they say, oh, making ends meet. That totally changed my life. I mean, it's not just I changed my mind, but it changed my life. And I can't take credit for that. I mean, a lot of it is the stories themselves. Making Ends Meet is Kathy Eden's book about how single mothers survive welfare and low-wage work. She wrote another book called Promises I Can Keep about how poor women approach marriage. And I have to tell you, it changed how I think about this topic. 
when you look at the data on single motherhood in poor neighborhoods, you, you can easily become convinced that that a lot of women in these areas, they just care less about marriage. Why? Because they're overwhelmingly likely to have children outside of marriage. I guess marriage doesn't matter, right? Well, Kathy Eden's book helped me understand that that's not true. What her book points out by telling the stories of women who have had children outside of marriage in poor neighborhoods is that marriage is so important to them that they don't want to diminish its importance by marrying a man that they don't love. This is a really different understanding of this whole problem that I, I could not have understood it had it not been for the stories in the words of real women in these real situations brought to me by Kathy Eden. Just ran into someone in the ladies' room the other day who said that about uh, you know, my book on single motherhood promises I could keep. I thought com- completely differently about single motherhood after I read that book. Interesting. And, and indeed, it changed my mind. I, I thought wow. differently about it. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, you, you gave evidence and, and not just data-based evidence. You give examples that made sense. And I said, huh, it's true. I've been acting as if those people had, those people had different values. And yeah. that was, I was thinking about this in the wrong way. You changed my mind with the power of stories. Well, that's really cool. We're going to turn now to the science of stories, how stories actually affect our brains, even our brain chemistry. And for that, we're going to talk to Paul Zak. He's a neuroeconomist and professor of economics, psychology, and management at Claremont Graduate University in Orange County, California. Paul Zak is one of the world's leading experts on something called oxytocin and how it's stimulated in our brains and affects our actions when we hear stories. So tell me, Paul, what is oxytocin? So it's an ancient neurochemical found uh, only in mammals that does the things we think are are, uh, prototypical of mammals, which is live birth, care for offspring, and social behaviors, particularly social bonding. And uh, the early studies we did on oxytocin uh, drew blood to measure the brain's acute production of oxytocin when someone trusted each other, uh, so strangers trusting each other with money uh, via computer. And the sort of view in biology and economics at the time was you would never trust a stranger because clearly money good, everyone steal money. It's a kind of caveman economics. But in fact, when someone trusts you almost all the time, people reciprocate and they're trustworthy. And the question was why? What we showed was that the more someone trusts you intentionally with money, the more your brain makes this neurochemical oxytocin, and the amount of oxytocin you make predicted with high accuracy how much money you would return. So we have an underlying neurophysiology of human connection, of reciprocity, of cooperation. And I think we've really opened up a new understanding of human nature as uh, deeply social beings. We need each other to survive. So when my brain pumps out a little bit of oxytocin, what do I feel? You feel a little relaxed. So think of uh, interacting with a stranger, right? So the value of that interaction could be you make a new friend, you can do a project together, right? You, something interesting happens from that relationship. But the downside is that person could injure you or hurt you or some way. And so we're constantly balancing the appropriate fear of being around strangers with the desire to interact with them. And so oxytocin helps maintain that balance on the positive side. It's, it says, oh, it, don't be stressed out. This is calm. This is okay. This, this guy seems nice in front of you. So it motivates you to interact socially. Um, while the other side of the nervous system, the kind of fight and flight side said, oh, you know, be careful. Don't, you know, don't give him the keys to your car. You never know. Um, so we're, we're maintaining that balance second by second. How do you measure that? Tell me about your experimentation. Tell me about your methods. 
Yeah, we first started doing this by looking at changes in neuroactive chemicals. So the difficult problem in neuroscience research is uh, we call signal extraction problem. Your brain is doing 500 things right now to keep you upright, breathing, and conscious. And a little bit of your brain is responding to my voice, the information you're getting from that. And so to extract that background noise, um, we run experiments over and over, but we also put in tasks. So we ran an experiment where we used a short emotional video uh, of a father who has a two-year-old son who's dying of brain cancer. I look at his face and I see him smiling and running around and playing like a normal kid. And I think if he can do that, so can I. It's very sad, runs 100 seconds, and we took blood before and after, but we added in a way to extract signal from noise. That is, we paid you be, to be in this experiment because we're taking blood from you twice and torturing you, and we gave you a chance to donate to the people who made this video, which was St. Jude Children's Hospital. And we found about half the people donated money. Now, again, this is odd from a sort of social science perspective. I show you a 100-second video, take your blood twice, and you're giving up your hard-earned, literally your blood money, to some hospital in Memphis? Why? So all this work worked backwards. We took an action and asked, what happens neurochemically when that action occurs? We found you needed two things. You needed to pay attention, and we can see that in changes in neurochemicals associated with physiologic arousal. Attention is metabolically costly, and the release of oxytocin. How do we really know this? We started looking at more and more stories, and we did studies where we traced out those pathways in the brain. For example, by giving people synthetic oxytocin, had them watch stories, they remembered the stories more, they donated more money, they empathized with the characters more. And over a course of 12 years and maybe $4 million of money, we identified really robust signals in the brain that will predict with 80 plus percent accuracy after I give you a message, will you take an action associated with that message? Here's, it seems to me, the practical implication of what you're talking about. If you want to connect with another person such that that connection will yield empathy, kindness, understanding of what you're talking about, it would be fortuitous, it would be useful if there would be some oxytocin. And the way to get that is by telling a story right from the very beginning. Is that correct? That is correct. And a human-scale story, right? Not a story about the huddled masses, a story about one person, right? One person who wanted to escape Ireland and, and raised a little bit of money to get on this boat and, and went across and got to Ellis Island and they wanted to change their name and they said no, right? I'm making up this story now, but that's a story we all understand. It's a story of struggle, but it's a story of conflict. It's a story of inner strength, a story of overcoming barriers. And we all have kind of lived that story and we love that story. And so if I can illustrate the point I'm trying to make by this human scale story with genuine emotion, with real conflict, and you allow the conflict to resolve, then I've done two things. I get you to care about it, and that's hard. Neurologically, it's hard to get you to care about anything because you, your brain wants to idle. That saves energy. But second, once you care about it, I create a story by creating tension, right? In our normal lives, we avoid tension. In storytelling, we create tension. I can relieve by that tension by now giving you an opportunity to act on the information I've given you, to act on that story. If you act on that story, now you've released the tension from the story, and I've gotten you to take an action that hopefully is in your best interest, but I've still gotten you to take an action that does something. Paul, why is it so hard to get people to care about something? And what's the hack? How does storytelling make it easier to get people interested in something, to care about something they might not necessarily care about? 
I am all about the hack. So our brains consume about 20% of our calories. It is a very expensive organ to run, and it modulates that high energy overhead by idling whenever possible. So the last thing my brain wants to do is engage with anything that will take metabolic resources away. Looking at data, uh, listening to you talk. So I've got to break through that inertia, and I do that at human scale with real emotion, with passion, with conflict, with something that we can't avoid looking at because as social creatures, we learn from others all the time. So if you give me a good story, I have a chance to learn. And if that story's endowed with real conflict and emotion, now I'm emotionally engaged and now my brain wants to run with you. It'll begin to share those emotions and now I care about what you care about and that's when I have a chance to engage and persuade. We're going to take a quick break now. More on storytelling when we're back. We're back talking about stories and how stories can help us disagree better. Now, to be sure, storytelling has its limitations. Sometimes it can even lead us in the wrong direction because... At times, a really strong narrative can emotionally overpower nuance, the nuance that tells us the truth about certain situations. For this, I want to turn to Grant Gordon. Grant Gordon has a PhD in political science from Columbia University, but he's not an academic. He works in the field with displaced people. As a matter of fact, he's the host of Displaced, which is a podcast on on crises and humanitarian conflicts. He's also the director of innovation strategy at the International Rescue Committee. Here's Grant Gordon on the limitations of stories. Welcome to the show, Grant. Pleasure to be here. Thank you so much, Arthur. And, you know, I'm glad to have another podcaster. Congratulations on the success of your show. Oh, thank you so much. So uh, the International Rescue Committee, which is a humanitarian organization providing life-saving services to those affected by conflict and disaster, launched uh, Displaced, in essence, to really explain this historical moment. So I'm sure you all well know that right now the world is witnessing the largest displacement crisis since World War II. There's 65 million people displaced globally. 22 million of them are refugees. And what the podcast really tries to do is understand the causes of the displacement crisis, of conflict, of disaster, as well as the consequences. How did you get into this? I mean, it's it's everybody's should be or is concerned about the fact that there are 65 million people displaced around the world. It's a, it, it tears at your heart. What actually makes somebody get involved in this as an activist like you? This is kind of interesting, and it gets to kind of what we're going to talk about on storytelling. I grew up in a family that was really committed to human rights. My grandparents were Holocaust survivors, and then my father was Israeli and was a human rights activist himself. And so I grew up in a family in which, you know, the idea of never again really meant something. And I remember when I was kind of in my teenage years, I uh, took my first kind of international law class at summer school in Colombia, and people told me about the Rwandan genocide, which had happened, you know, six, seven years earlier at that point. I remember I must have been the most annoying 17-year-old at this point because they told me about the Rwanda genocide. And I went to everyone was like, have you heard there was a genocide in Rwanda? Um, and one of the things that struck me about this... 90% of the people said they had not heard. 90% probably. hadn't heard. Yeah, yeah. Not only was I annoying them, but they also didn't know. <laughs> and one of the questions that I asked myself was, how could people move through their daily lives when issues as severe as genocide were occurring at the same time. And I then decided to kind of dedicate my life to 
you know, working to provide for those affected by genocides, by civil wars, by conflict. And recently, particularly over the past five years with the Syrian conflict, I've gotten a better understanding of how that actually happens because like I myself wake up every day, I have breakfast with my wife and my cats. I don't talk about the Syrian civil war every day at every moment in my household with my friends. And I've started to understand how you just live your life simultaneous while things happen. And this is to me, begs the question of like, how do you then get people to care? Because people are going to live their lives every day. And that's one of the things that I spend quite a bit of my time doing now. I think about how we tell stories, you know, right now, going back to like, how do we think about the Syrian crisis right now? So in Syria, there have been 500,000 people who've been killed, 5 million displaced refugees, 6 million internally displaced people. And this is going on for five years, day after day. Right. And people know about this. Mm. People like, you know, this is on the headlines. I mean, 500,000 people have died. Yeah. It's right. It's mind boggling. Right. And totally incomprehensible. And not relatable because these numbers are numbing. Exactly. I mean, and so that's your point, right? I mean, this is so there's a there's a great academic, Paul Slovic, at the University of Oregon, who has essentially asked the question of why are we why why do we not respond to mass atrocities? And his hypothesis is that, you know, essentially once you move up in numbers, there's essentially psychic numbing that happens. And so day after day, when you hear these numbers, nobody gets involved. And there's there's an interesting comparative inflection point. So in September 2015, Island Kurdi was a three-year-old Syrian boy who washed up ashores on the, on the beaches of Turkey dead. Nothing has captured this crisis like the picture that we began with last night. The three-year-old Syrian boy who washed up, drowned on a Turkish beach. It's hard to watch, but it should be seen. This caused a huge international uprising and upswelling. His name is Ilan Kurdi, two years old. He and his family were traveling from Turkey to Greece, hoping to join relatives in Vancouver. Their overcrowded vessel capsized in the water off Turkey. Only the father survived. They were buried Friday at home in Kobane, Syria. The French president called the Turkish president. The British prime minister made a statement. Britain has a moral responsibility to help refugees as we have done throughout our history. Individuals got involved, and one of the things that studies have done is actually tracked what charitable giving was around then to the Syrian crisis. And you see that as soon as this happens, there's a huge upsurge in giving, a huge upsurge in involvement, and then it begins to decay. After one week, it decays. After two weeks, it, it decays. After three weeks, it decays. And by five weeks, you essentially go back to the place where just the volume of 500,000 people begins to cause that same type of numbing. So there's this fundamental tension, right? You want to communicate the severity of these issues, right? 65 million people are displaced. 500,000 people have died. And we also know that that has no impact, right? So you're in a fundamental tension of how do you tell stories while also being true to the data. So let's talk about how you do that. There is an axiom in fundraising that one is greater than 10 million. Mm -hmm. 
And that's not just bad math. Yeah. One, Stalin also made this point. Stalin right? made this point. But one death look, is a tragedy of millions of statistics. Statistic, exactly right. And what we find is that one story is greater than a statistic about 10,000 people. So it's the positive spin on what someone, what Stalin was saying. Um, and, and we've seen this in fundraising on, on all sorts of, of humanitarian causes, where if you say 10,000 kids are, are in danger mm-hmm. of losing their lives because of insufficient access to safe, clean drinking water, say, well, it's, yeah, it's terrible. You know, something's got to be done. But you say this one one kid in Tanzania, you show his face and you show his name and you say that if you help mm-hmm. with nineteen ninety nine a month and in, in a few years when he's old enough, he's going to send you a letter. He's going to tell you what his dreams and plans are. And then suddenly people give more and you think, wow, that's really, that's really lame, man. That is so sentimental because it's just one person. Why isn't 10 million more important? And the answer is, of course, because people are psychically numbed by the number 10 million and people are stimulated in their hearts as humans by the story of Joey, the boy in Tanzania that Mm -hmm. has the real face and the real story. What's the danger of being all about stories? Why shouldn't you just be like 24-7 about the stories to get more people involved? Joey over and over again? Yeah. There's some real pitfalls in storytelling. And there's a few of them, right? So some of the ones that concern me in particular are one, when you pick a story, are you picking a story that's actually representative of the issue, right? Is the, is the Joey that you're profiling actually insightful about what's going on or have you somehow picked an outlier? And I think you kind of see this from a lot of places, right? Like we want to tell the story of like the person who did well. And maybe like one thing that would resonate with the audience here, right, is like, you know, the Horatio Alger myth in the United States, right? There's a myth that you can pull yourself up by the bootstraps, that there's the story of this guy, Horatio, and he did a great job and that any individual can do this. And it's really easy to find people on the side of the distribution that have done this, right? Outliers. But then when you look at the average data and you look at intergenerational mobility um, between going from uh, you know lower class to middle class to upper class, you see that that dream is actually far from a reality. And so the first piece is you have to make sure that you're actually finding a story that corresponds and captures the actual trend. The second piece that I get particularly concerned about is the dangers of oversimplification, right? All of a sudden, like you have a picture of Joey. And you want to say, like, let's help Joey. And that's actually really important. Like, we can help Joey. And one of the things I'd, like, definitely want to communicate is that you can give and giving to these issues makes a huge difference. But that there's also some broader dangers. So when you look at the story of Island Curdy, right, this was tragic. We can help kids like that. But once you start to do that, then there's also bigger questions. How do we think about the Syrian conflict? How do we think about the policy levers that we can pull to actually change the dynamics of that conflict such that we stop it? Then what are the complexities of foreign military intervention or humanitarian intervention or kinetic intervention? And all of a sudden, once you start thinking about the broader geopolitical contexts, there's such a distance between the individual story of a person and those types of actual conundrums that we need to solve and think about that you can get taken down an alley that doesn't necessarily empower us to think about the solutions that are actually necessary for these places. And that's when it gets complex. And this is, this is the challenge of stories. They are simple. And one of the things that like, I grapple with oftentimes, not only on the data side, right, on the psychic numbing side, but like, how do you get people involved in the complex, right? Like, if you came to people and you said, 
Let me tell you about the Syrian conflict. It's been going on for five years. There's eight to, you know, or more international parties who are sponsoring uh, over 100 rebel groups who are fragmented and have different complex kind of political organizations. And we have no solutions that we think work given the data on this. Come get involved. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, that's not Sounds really like compelling. Sounds like an exercise futility. Exactly. Yeah. But, like, you can help kids like Island Curdy. And so that difference is, is one that I think about a lot, and, and that doesn't have a simple answer. Now, there's a flip side, too, right? And you see this in, in, uh, in the way that refugees are talked about in the United States now, right? Like, I think about during the election when Donald Trump Jr. was talking about refugees, and he had a line that was something like, what if I told you that you could take a handful of skills from this bowl of skills, but three would kill you. That's our Syrian refugee problem, right? And Wrigley's, who owns Skittles, like immediately came out and said, Skittles are candy. Refugees are humans, right? And like, not only, I mean, then the math was wrong, right? So then when you actually kind of empirically assess this, Cato did a study that, you know, I'd love to talk about because it shows that refugees in the United States, the chance of being killed by a refugee terrorist is one in 3.64 billion. That is 168,000 times the chance of just being killed by an American. If you actually subset it to Syrians, which he was talking about, there's no deaths that have been Skittles caused are by more this. like having an anvil fall on your head in New York City or something like that. Is that the- but this, is, this goes back to the like, problem like storytelling. Like, what Donald Trump Jr. is doing there, besides completely dehumanizing human beings and also using completely fallacious data to do so, was essentially drawn some tropes that were really evocative, right? Like everybody, it's hard to understand what like 65 million refugees are, but everybody knows what Skittles are like. Hmm. It's hard to know what welcoming a refugee into this country is like, but everybody knows what it means to put your hands in a bowl of Skittles, right? And these are, these are kind of the tropes of storytelling that are more compelling, that are more persuasive, that totally overturn the fact that they can be absolutely wrong and dehumanizing and degrading. And that's the real danger of stories. I hope the broad arc that humanity is on is one in which we are increasingly opening the aperture of how we identify with each other. When I think about evolutionary, what has happened to us over like the past tens of thousands of years. We used to be in small groups together. We can we know how to react to people's emotions and faces. And that's actually kind of cross-cultural. But we don't know how to kind of understand and identify different groups. We don't know and uh, how to understand and identify with what their concerns are, what their problems are, what their lives are like. As we increasingly kind of move forward, we hope that we can so that we can actually share space, share an understanding of humanity and share kind of an understanding of the complexity of the lives that people lead. And I think it's really crucial. I think that like the core enterprise that I hope that everybody embarks on is one in which they try to embrace more understanding of people who they intuitively think are different from them. Hmm. The cosmic truth I'm getting from Grant Gordon's philosophy here is that trying to understand how they're different from us is actually helping us to understand how we're the same. Mic drop. <laughs> yeah. Grant Gordon, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Arthur. This is a podcast about disagreement. Now, the secret to disagreeing better really is one of understanding. 
If you want somebody to disagree with you in a way that doesn't treat you with contempt, they need to understand you and you need to understand the other person as well. The heart of understanding each other is telling stories about real people, about yourself and about others. What a great source of understanding this can be if we master it. Tell more stories and disagree better. Our team at AEI is Cece Gallagher and Nathan Thompson. At Vox Media, our producer is Gautam Srikashan, who also composed our theme music. Golda Arthur is senior producer. And Nishath Kurwa is executive producer of audio. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Tell someone you know about this show and leave us a rating and a review. You've heard my stories. Now I want to hear yours. Maybe you agree. Maybe you disagree. Either way, get in touch with us at arthurbrookshow at voxmedia.com. Or you can get in touch with me on Twitter. I'm at Arthur Brooks. Thanks for listening. For 70 years, the nonpartisan Pew Charitable Trust has researched the data and the facts that promote civil conversation and lead to innovative policy solutions. Now, it's providing some of that civil dialogue in a podcast called After the Fact. In each episode, Pew shares a surprising stat and a story that help illuminate the issues that matter. Listen at pewtrust.org slash after the fact, or subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your favorite programs.